So now we have taxable income, adjusted gross income, and income, whatever that means. It'll be super simple. Don't worry about it. You bet. Welcome to the Wealth and Law podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and not per usual, I am not joined by Rachel Sass because Rachel is dutifully and deservedly on vacation this week. But thankfully, I'm not totally alone because I have basically a special co-host in my friend Gary Fletcher. Gary, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Brent. For the three people in the world who have no idea who you are, uh, why don't you at least give people an idea of your bona fides? So, well, I just learned that uh, top of my list, I'm your friend. (laughs) So I'm an attorney and CPA in Tucson, Arizona. I've been practicing about 31 years um, and have practiced in the estate planning and tax planning arena throughout the course of that career. It's all you do. That's what you're saying. That's the, that's all you're capable of. I, I'm looking up that word vacation that you just said right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For some people, it really matters. I don't think I don't think you're going to get one anytime soon. Uh, apropos to what we're about to discuss. <laughs> Not looking that way. <laughs> how how I mean, you just have basically been through two of well, maybe one and a half, maybe two and a half of like the most hellish tax seasons uh, in in memory. How are you doing? So, um, well, aside from being uh, gracefully making my way through some bug that somebody has given me now that we're allowed to shake hands again, uh, we're, we're recovering and uh, we, we got through two extended tax seasons with uh, folks thinking that we got cut a big break by the extended deadlines when in essence it was kind of a... Uh, pain in the neck because they extended some things and didn't extend the others. And we had income tax filing deadlines that didn't need to be extended, but we still have gift tax returns that need to be extended. And that's easy to miss. So um, I'll be happy to be back to normalcy. Did you ever think in your entire career in public accounting that you would say those words, I will be glad to get back to the normal schedule of public accounting? I am. I am gladly waiting for April 15th. Yes. Well, oh. when, when when April 16 once again becomes a drinking day, yes. Yeah. Then you'll then you'll be reacquainted with this vacation thing everybody's talking about. Then I'll know it's normal once again, yes. <laughs> well, let's talk about abnormal things, which is essentially uh, all of the noise going on right now about potential tax changes. Huge caveat to this discussion, which would be um, neither you nor I, as far as I'm aware, have a crystal ball. And so we don't know for sure what changes, if any, uh, there are going to be, when they're going to happen, whether they'll be retroactive, whether they'll not be retroactive, what the effective date would be if they're somewhere in between. Uh, We don't know the details of exactly what changes uh, will happen, the ins and outs of them. We, We don't know any of that. Nobody knows any of that. In fact, Gary and I spent the day attending the uh, ACTEC, the American College of Trusts and Estates Council uh, summer conference, and that's all of the smart people from across the country opining on these sorts of things, and none of those people know what's going to happen. So if all the smartest people across the country don't know anything about what's going to happen, they don't have a crystal ball, then certainly Gary and I sitting in Tucson do not have a crystal ball. My only crystal ball has snow and a Santa Claus in it. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's what we're left with. But 
Um, there is, there are some little breadcrumbs that are out there, and one of the most recent breadcrumbs that came out was the so-called Green Book, which is the administer of the White House's uh, budget proposal. It's sort of like the opening negotiation wish list in um, in the budget negotiations with Congress. And there were a few interesting tidbits in there that I thought maybe you and I could talk about, Gary. One is talking about the increased capital gains rates, which seems to have gotten a lot of press and a lot of people energized. Uh, the other is the idea of making gifts a taxable event for capital assets, not something that we have ever had, as far as I'm aware. Um, carving out from those exceptions for spouses and charities, which we can talk about why that might be really important going forward. And then the fact that the Green Book does not mention changes to the estate and gift taxes, even though that is a proposal that is actually in Congress to change the estate and gift tax exemptions. So um, if that's OK with you, then I say let's let's chat about these increased capital gains rates. Sure, Brent. And, and uh, you know, I guess I would I would start kind of backwards in that uh, it is interesting that the Green Book doesn't make mention of any proposal to uh, make changes to the estate and gift tax exemption or laws. Um, of course, there's been lots of noise about that forever, as there always is. Um, but as I read some of the other provisions that we're looking at dealing with capital gains and um, taxable transfers that didn't used to be taxable, um, one could look at it as they're effectively achieving a change in the estate and gift tax exemption and laws via the income tax provisions. Um, so, and these provisions you know, are kind of an easy sell in the media because it's the tax the wealthy. So they can get the masses uh, on board. The problem is that as you read through what they uh, propose to do, uh, the changes that would come about, number one, are an administrative nightmare. They, um, as would normally be the case, they've done some broad strokes and haven't taken into account how would we possibly implement this. But it goes beyond uh, income tax to uh, and planning, but but and estate planning, but to the way that we've done business my whole career as far as forming businesses, forming entities, transferring assets to entities, transactions that forever have been non-tax events suddenly become taxable events. And I query whether they've taken those consequences into account. So, you know, the most basic provision is, hey, let's hike the capital gains rate on rich people, right? Um, so right now we sit uh, where the, the capital gains, or at least the long-term capital gains, meaning you held it at least 12 months or more, whatever you're selling, would cap out at 20%, 23.8 if you want to add in the Obama or net investment income tax um, once you reach certain income thresholds. Um, uh, but then uh, they're going to look at taxing capital gains as ordinary income if you make enough money. So backing up from there, if you make enough money, they're looking at a sweep across the board of just changing the top marginal ordinary income tax rate from 39, from 37 rather to 39.6%. But they're not just doing that or they're not just proposing to do that. Right now, you hit the top rate at levels of give or take 600,000, 500,000, and 300,000, depending on your filing status, joint, single, or married filing separate. What they propose to do is not just up that rate by about 3%, but drop down the threshold where you reach that rate by roughly $100,000 on each of one of those 
filing statuses. So they're raising the rates and at the same time kind of under the rug, dropping down the income level that you need to be at before you would hit that rate. Which is kind of an interesting thing because in the uh, in the Trump tax cuts, quote unquote tax cuts, one of the things that they did to those income tax rate uh uh, levels is they actually condensed them down a bit. They got rid of one entire rate level. They condensed two into one, and then they bumped up uh, the maximum, or they 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 reduced the maximum rate. Uh, but basically, by condensing down two of the rates in the middle, they on a very small little sliver of humanity, they actually increased tax rates on those people. So this is a little bit of a you're going to kind of condense those down just a little bit more, squeeze them down just a little bit more, and then and then jack up uh, the top rate on on the top of the the chart. Yeah, you know, it's kind of the advertisement on the front door, but while you're sweeping stuff in the back door at the same time. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that because you you brought up the 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 capital gains rate on on the top amount, which which is really interesting because the number that they've come up with is a million dollars. And you know, I think you and I would we're not really sure what that means. Million dollars of income is it gross income? Is it is it adjusted gross income? What do you get to include in adjusted gross income? Well, here's the and here's what I think is the kicker there, at least if I, that's the way I'm reading the green book. So and this is where they kind of mix and match and um, have some missing you know a lot of missing definitions, etc. But on, on everything that we just talked about as far as raising the marginal top income tax rate, the income thresholds are all taxable income, right? Mm-hmm. The, the threshold for reaching uh, the surcharge penalty, whatever we'd like to term it, of converting your capital gain into ordinary income is a million dollars of adjusted gross income for joint taxpayers. Mm-hmm. 500,000 for a single taxpayer. So interestingly, um, you could be at $500,000 as a single taxpayer of adjusted gross uh, and, you know, almost certainly near near the $450,000 threshold for taxable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've ensured that, okay, you are, you're going to be taxed as ordinary and you're going to be taxed at the maximum rate. Right. So just like you were going through, okay, well, We'll kind of have some provisions up front and then the, and then the back room will be compressing some things so that, well, it's not just a shift to ordinary income rates. We're making sure you're shifted to the maximum ordinary income tax rate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and then you and then you would layer on top of that your state level income taxes and it becomes a much, a much larger number. You start stacking on top of that federal and state rates. So, maybe, you know, most states don't quite have as progressive uh, uh, tax rates as the federal rates, but in some states there is a there is a jump. So, like in California, if you have a million dollars of of income, you pay 13.3 percent. Well, if you're in that 13.3 percent rate in California and you have capital gains under these plans, it appears you're going to pay the maximum federal rate, which is going to be 39.6 plus 3.8 plus your 13.3. Well, which is fact, somewhere ro- roughly around 57% tax, state and local, and or federal and state. Using California as an example, it's even worse because once, if if you are above a million, California has what I term the millionaire tax as well. So you not only pay the 13.3% max California income tax rate, but you pay a surcharge or a privilege tax for being uh, having income in excess of a million dollars. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and Arizona, you know, as you know, um, uh, we, we at least at the moment stand to take quite a big jump in our max 
income tax rate based on the proposition that passed last November. So we used to be at give or take 4.4, 4.5% maximum in Arizona, which made us a, you know, top third or bottom third, however you want to look at it, tax-friendly state. Um, but the proposition uh, implements a surcharge, which will take that four and a half up to 8%, which puts us in the top 15 or 20 tax not friendly states. So those are all numbers for those of us sitting in here, sitting here in Arizona, that um, suddenly we're looking at a, a pretty steep tax hit. Yeah, absolutely. It uh, when you when you start combining, you start stacking together state rates and the federal rates, especially when you have a very high federal rate, um, it, it becomes very compelling to try to find ways to reduce your rate overall, even at margins. Because if you're talking about paying 50% tax versus 45% tax, maybe you're more compelled to find that 5% tax savings than you would be if you were at, say, 40% versus 35%, right? Um, well, and, and not only not only that, it changes kind of uh, it changes the the whole game of investment outlook and and investment um, portfolio allocations. In that, all of a sudden, searching out municipal bonds and other technical <laughs> vehicles becomes a game again or attractive again. As does uh, depending on what situation you're in, whether you need the fixed income or you don't. Suddenly, maybe you're looking at growth-only assets, which will take us into something else. We're going to talk about is okay. Well, are they going to take take a stab at that growth without you having to uh, dispose of it? Yeah. You know. And one other thing I want to mention before we move on is that um, when we get into the nuance of uh, the the change in the rate bracket being um, premised on taxable income, the shift from a capital gain rate to an ordinary rate being dependent upon adjusted gross income, they then go on to say that you make that shift when your adjusted gross income is over the million or 500,000 for single, but the the increment on which you're taxed at ordinary rates is only to the extent that your income exceeds 1 million. So now we have taxable income, adjusted gross income, and income whatever that means. It'll be super simple. Don't worry about it. You bet. There'll be a form for that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. As always. All right. Well, what about the, you, uh, you alluded to this. What about these deemed realization on gift slash contribution ideas, which is to your point, a little bit of a, of a changing the gift tax rules without actually changing the gift tax rules. Right. So so as we sit, uh, you know, most of the noise that we hear out there with regard to changing the estate and gift tax laws deals with reeling back in the estate and gift tax exemption amount from the roughly 11.7 million that it sits at right now to either an inflation adjusted five where it's going to be in 2026 anyway, or roll all the way back to 2009 numbers at three and a half. Um, so right now you exceed that number and disregarding, you know, leaving it to a spouse or any other exceptions, you're looking at a 40% tax. When we start looking at imposing um, income tax on deemed lifetime transfers at the rates that we just talked about, they're active, actually achieving effectively a, a return on unrealized gain that would exceed in in many cases the estate tax that would be imposed so forever well at least dating back to a couple of times in history um, we have dealt with the concept of step up in basis on death on a transfer at death and carryover basis if we make a gift 
and that we don't realize gain on capital transactions until we have a, a disposition, until we sell it or some other taxable event. So that the proposed change would be that certain transfers would be deemed dispositions of assets on which you have unrealized appreciation or gains. Um, and first and foremost, one of those would be if I make a gift. So if I have Coca-Cola stock that I acquired for 50 bucks and now it's at 500 bucks uh, and I want to gift it to whomever, well, up until now, you know, not a taxable event. Maybe I use some of my gift tax exemption and my donee takes a carryover basis of whatever my basis was. The proposed change would make that transfer a taxable event to the donor. Um, and if I don't do it in li at lifetime, then my transfer at death would be deemed a taxable event for income tax purposes. And that's where I think it, it, it ferrets out what we've been talking about, maybe a backdoor of the estate tax where Maybe I have an estate that, um, you know, under the current exemption, I wouldn't even have to file a 706 or an estate tax return based on the number. Uh, but let's say it was just shy. It was eight or nine million. And of that eight or nine million, there was six million of appreciation in there. Well, up until now, I wouldn't have to file an estate tax return. And the beneficiaries of my estate would receive that eight or nine million, take a new basis. All bets are off. Everybody's happy. This would have us maybe not have to file a 706, maybe to pay income tax now, based on the way the Green Book reads, um, but we would be paying uh, a tax on that unrealized depreciation of five or $6 million. And the, the, the administrative provision says that that would be reported and handled either on a gift or estate tax return, depending on whether it occurs during life or at death, or on a separate capital gains tax return, whatever that may be, which assuming that they were to come up with something like that, then my question becomes, okay, if we're reporting this deemed um, disposition or deemed realization of unrealized gain on a gift tax return, an estate tax return, or some tax return that we're gonna make up as a separate return, then how on earth does that jive with everything that we just talked about, about when do capital gains get taxed at ordinary rates? If I'm not reporting this deemed realization on my income tax return, then how do those two mix and match? I just dropped my crystal ball. Yeah, it's good. The crystal ball is well and truly broken. Nobody <laughs> understands how any of that is going to work together. And I can tell that very few people are thinking, what can we do to make life easier for the accountants? Is there anything we can do to just make things slightly simpler for the accountants who will have to tell us about all these transactions in the future? Well, of course, the savings provision is at the at the end of the whopping four pages that they address these simple matters in and say, uh, by the way, Treasury, you can issue whatever regulations you need. Yeah. To make <laughs> and, and we all know how fast that happens. Yes, exactly. So you'll be sitting around waiting maybe forever for guidance from the Treasury Department. What about, um, okay, what if, so we talked about sort of like straight gifts, straight you die owning. Well, we should we should layer in there. I, I think in the green book, they mentioned that there would be a an exemption from capital gains, sort of like you have against the state and gift tax of $500,000, I'm sorry, a million dollars per person. And then they stack on top of that very kindly, the already existing exemption from capital gains of $250,000 on a principal residence. So they, so they, 
put all those together and say, oh, look, between couples who are married, you get $2.5 million of exemption. So you know, everybody can pat themselves on the back. Assuming you own a principal residence, that's what and, you would get. And we'll do you another favor. We'll we'll make it portable. So we'll, uh, yes. so, so we'll yes. adopt that concept from our existing estate tax provisions. We'll make it portable so that if spouse one dies, uh, they have their million dollars of a threshold or an exemption on unrealized gain, plus they have their 250 on a residence, which uh, if unused, they can roll to the spouse, which takes me down to sub A, sub one, sub three, sub little I. Okay, what what happens if the spouse no longer uses it as a residence? Is that going to be a triggering event? A lot of a lot of what ifs in this green book. Um, yeah. All right. What about what about contributions to trusts? So um, this is this is where um, uh, this is where it becomes a game changer beyond the uh, estate planning world and, and even a little bit to the income tax planning world and, and goes off into areas of just general business law that um, I could foresee this getting overlooked and a lot of things getting messed up. So um, transfers to trusts, transfers to partnerships, transfers to any other non-corporate entity, so i.e. Uh, LLCs, that would be a, a triggering event for realization of unrealized gain um, with, uh, with an exception of uh, a grantor revocable trust. So the so the plain vanilla revocable trusts that are at a core of probably 99% of our estate plans the transfers into there would be exempt. And then once the assets are in there, since it's the alter ego of the grantor or settlor, the same rules that we just went over on deemed realization for the settlor or grantor would apply to, to transfers out of that grantor trust. But if we're transferring to an irrevocable trust, a partnership, an LLC, any other non-corporate entity, then simply funding that is a taxable event. Um, so obviously um, that changes the planning from a state planner's perspective quite a bit on the irrevocable trust side, but just basic business planning, uh, forming an LLC for uh, a rental property that you know that it's not a brand new purchase you've held it for a while and you just now finally got some advice that hey for liability protection you ought to hold that in an llc well today that would be you know a chip shot you get that advice automatically form an llc drop it in there well the day after this thing would take effect dropping it in there just became a taxable event um so yeah. And, so they, and that's and that's one of those areas sorry i didn't mean to cut across you there gary but the and that's one of those areas where when i read the green book, it's not as clear to me that what they mean is non-corporate entities that are also not disregarded entities for tax purposes, where if you had a single member LLC and you got your rental unit, you could put it into the single member LLC. If it's disregarded, you're fine. To me, logically, that would still be off the table. As, as long as it's a disregarded entity, that would make logical sense to me, which probably, yeah. probably means I'm wrong. Yeah, exactly. Um, but if we get out into the scenario where um, where it's not a husband and wife LLC, um, so we have two members, uh, or it's a husband and wife LLC, and for whatever reason, which there are occasions where we decide, all right, we're not going to treat it as a disregarded entity. We're going to file a 1065 for it. Once we do that, you know, it, it takes 351 and 751 out of the code, which has been there in basic 
business planning forever. How they could possibly have intended to do that is beyond me, but the words in the green book would result in that. It actually, so it's curious to me because it does two things. Number one, it makes our system look in some ways similar to the Canadian system because gifts can be, and contributions to trust can be deemed sales in Canada, as I understand it from all my Canadian friends, but that's not necessarily the case when you make contributions into business entities in Canada, again, as I understand it from my business friends. And then in the States, when you're making a transfer uh, and you're a US person of US property into a foreign entity of certain varieties, like foreign corporations, some foreign partnerships, some foreign trusts, that's also a taxable event when you make that contribution. So it's like it's it's taking a little bit from column A, the Canadian system on the gifts, and then a little bit from column B from the, the way that we treat transfers into foreign entities and then smashing them together and saying, we're going to have our own thing here, potentially. And, and unfortunately, it seems like we're, we're taking the top layer off of all those two or three systems and throwing them together and leaving the details of all three systems set aside. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that would be a that would be quite a game changer if they did that. So think so think about it from this perspective, just for maybe a little bit of context for anybody listening to this. You are a real estate developer. You own the lot. You've owned the lot forever. You bought it when it was vacant land and nobody wanted it. You held on to it for for 15 years. It's appreciated in value. Now you've got a partner coming in. They're bringing cash. Maybe they're bringing some expertise. Maybe they're a a general contractor. You form a partnership right now, and then you get lending to do the development and the way that the partnership tax rules work, you, you, everybody can make those contributions into the partnership. The, the loan funds can come in, and based on your share of those loan funds, in essence, you can depreciate and take deductions off of that development. Well, if they change the rules and say you can't do that basically with the partnership without triggering a gain, now you're in a quandary. How do you... Uh, how do you meet your multiples and meet your margins on your development project when you can't really take depreciation deductions and you're getting hit with high ta- high income tax rates on money that's coming out of the development if any money is being dispersed? And as as crass as it kind of is, the real estate industry in a lot of ways operates off of incentives. And when they don't have incentives, they'll sit on the sidelines. And the, the most... Uh... I guess the closest analogy I can make in my career is the 86 Act when we were introduced to the passive activity loss rules. So forever, if we're going to use real estate development as the example, uh, the syndications were sold for the passive losses that were going to kick out, resulting primarily from depreciation. So you would make a passive investment, the entity would lose money primarily from depreciation, so not not a cash loss a paper loss, and you would take it on your flow through return, along comes the 86 Act and says, no, 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 no. We're going to introduce passive activity loss rules. And the real estate development industry went, whoops. So we could, you know, whether directly, indirectly, intentional or otherwise, we could see something similar if they were to pass something like this. Mm-hmm. So and then so one one other provision so that we don't skip it, because this is kind of unique in that um the 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 green book 
seems to propose uh, to implement, I guess, what I would call a tax rule against perpetuities in that uh, if you had one of these vehicles, a trust, a partnership, or any other non-corporate entity that had not basically cleansed its unrealized gain for 90 years, then we'd have a triggering date where, okay, it's time to realize all those gains. And they go ahead and decide that the first testing period will start January 1, 1940. Yeah. So, so, um, if, so if they were to implement it, that then come the end of 2030, which is only, you know, if they pass this, it's basically only eight years away. Uh, every trust partnership, LLC, limited partnership, whatever kind of entity you want to describe that has appreciated assets in it or unrealized gain come 1231, 2030, New Year's Eve is a triggering event, which, of course, you know, in some of these entities, um, if they've been around that long, they're going to have assets in there that are fully depreciated. So so I query, okay, does appreciation or appreciation and unrealized gain the same word? Does it have to be appreciation of the asset or is it strictly unrealized gain? So if I have a $500,000 asset that hasn't appreciated a dime, but I've fully depreciated it, so I have unrealized gain of $500,000 sitting in there, are these provisions gonna trigger that? So if I have a bunch of equipment that's sitting fully depreciated, uh, and equipment's not a good example with 90 years, but if I have something fully depreciated, Am I going to have to recognize that? Yeah, it's not clear. And that that date is a very curious one. It, it When I read it, I thought, well, 2031 would be a really good year for the Internal Revenue Service or the Department of Treasury. It's going to be an enriching year. And every year before that, uh, everybody who owns appreciated property is going to be trying to figure out how do they get out of it with the least amount of tax possible. Well, interestingly, it will be a midterm year. I'm sure they didn't do that on purpose. No, not at all. So I mean, um, the, the other exception we should, yeah, we should yeah, mention yeah. just before we skip it over is that um, the, the Green Book does build in an exception to the deemed disposition or realization for um, small businesses, mm -hmm. uh, similar to some provisions that we have in the estate tax code right now, where um, you could uh, defer or pay on installments. So they, they attempt to at least broad stroke provide for, all right, if you, if you die with a business with significant appreciation, at least initially, we're going to say, you don't have to recognize that until you sell it, or we're going to give you a 15-year installment on it or somewhere in between. So they've carved out some sort of exception that they intend to, to look at for that. Mm -hmm. Well, and then they, they say there's going to be exceptions for transfers to spouses and the, I think what they say is charitable share um, of a transfer to charity, which raises a few questions in my mind. If you think about this as a, a way to to through the back door change the the gift and estate tax rules well all transfers to spouses are not created equally in the gift and estate tax rules so if you make a transfer into trust for your spouse is that going to count is it going to matter what kind of trust it is are you going to have to make a tax election to get that benefit uh if your spouse is a non-citizen of the united states is that going to make a difference you know do you still get the same exclusion and there's uh, multitudinous and very boring rules about all of those things that we don't have to um, regale people with right now. But those sorts of details are just not flushed out at all. They just sort of like tossed in these words, spouses and the charitable share, as if everybody understands what that means. 
when at least out of the current system, just saying that nobody knows what that means because it's too complicated. Well, and and we go when we go off to that fork in this road, the thing that piqued my interest is that apparently somewhere along the way, someone um, in the administration or or in treasury or wh whoever is coming up with this has decided that they don't like charitable remainder trusts because they've got a provision indicating that if you make a transfer to a split interest trust, which would include a charitable remainder trust, uh, no longer will that transfer be completely tax-free. It will only be the, uh, the portion of the value that's deemed attributable to the charity, which, you know, in order to qualify as a CRT, that, that, piece only has to be 10%. So, you know, if, if we're taking the, the uh, plain vanilla classic example of a, an appreciated piece of real property or stock that somebody doesn't want to uh, incur the tax on, which they really won't want to incur if they implement this capital gain change, um, and at the same time, they'd like to create some cash flow for themselves. Well, the CRT has been, you know, forever a, a kind of a simple go-to, uh, with the concept being you transfer it into the CRT, not a taxable event, get a charitable deduction for the value of the remainder interest, everybody's happy. Uh, now, uh, you know, in, in a lot of instances, if it was a lifetime trust or even for a term of years, the, the, that charitable piece was coming in borderline right at the 10%. Well, if I'm putting in a million dollar piece of property uh, with $900,000 of appreciation in it, and suddenly I find out, well, I'm gonna have to recognize 900% of that appreciation when I fund the CRT, bye-bye CRTs. <laughs> yeah, it's gonna make them harder uh, to implement. I mean, they're already not easy to do enormous amounts of transactions with because they have so many restrictions on them, but it would, it would severely cut against their utility. Uh, there's no question about that. I actually think that there could be two things. Well, no, number one, uh, one thing we, did, we didn't mention is that if you made a, if you make a transfer of a partial interest in an entity, they don't want to allow you to take discounts against that partial interest transfer. So I'm assuming the same thing would be true for a transfer into a CRT, except for the fact that under the IRS valuation rules, there are regulatory discounts that apply when you're calculating the value of the share of the CRT that you retain. And it turns out as interest rates go up, the value of the thing that you retain goes down. Um, and so in a perverse way, if we actually have, say, 3% inflation that drives interest rates up, uh, the so-called 75-20 rate up, it's going to make CRTs even if they have this component to them, a little bit more compelling because you could either do that transfer directly to someone and you're going to pay 100% the undiscounted uh, amount of the, the uh, gain, or you can put it into a CRT and you're going to only pay gain on a discounted piece of uh, the property that you transferred. And I, again, the, the Green Book doesn't really say whether they're contemplating those sorts of things, whether they are going to clamp down on it. Uh, who knows? You know, and but, then- and then if you go that route, are you going to have to are you going to have to suddenly rather than fully fund your CRT in one fell swoop, are you going to have to piece it out so that you don't fully fund it and find yourself breaching these thresholds on the game that you do have to recognize? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have like uh, installment CRTs. <laughs> that would be interesting. Um, there's another there's another component to that, which is curious to me, which is um whether it would make sense for whether it would make sense for um, CRTs funded basically with cash, 
if you can get it. Oh, sorry, two things. So number one, the CRT is funded with cash if you, if you can get a hold of the cash and then have the CRT be the purchaser on the property that you wanted to get into the CRT anyways. So now you're getting a stream of income out of the CRT. You're taking a charitable deduction, presumably, for putting the money in there. But you do the transaction, you get the asset into the CRT where you wanted it to begin with. That's one thing. The second thing that it makes me think about, if you got all these like realization events, all these taxable events, so people are going to have to come up with cash to pay tax, whether there's going to be a cottage industry, if they enacted these ideas, uh, but a cottage industry in lending people money to pay taxes. Um, because I think under normal kind of investment philosophy, the longer you can defer taking your money, say, out of the market and giving it to the government, the better you're, you are. And so you'd always want to borrow the money to pay to the government and defer that as long as humanly possible. So, you know, is there going to be a, a cottage industry of just all sorts of lending, leveraged lending uh, to normal Joe Schmoes who have tax debts uh, and now banks are going to be holding all these tax debts essentially on their books. So, so you know, so I've kind of been thinking about, so, you know, so what kind of industry does this lead? To? I mean, all these kinds of things obviously lead to new industries sprouting up, right? So like on the CRT, the, the problem I would see is, is getting over the hurdle of, of that not, you know, being collapsed as a prearranged sale. Um, but assuming you get over that, the, the games that I would see coming into play would be suddenly we're shifting shifting away from planning for step up in basis and okay for those of you with pet peeves you know basis adjustment it's not always a step up but shifting away from step up in basis to substitution of basis becoming the new hot issue whether that be by manufacturing some sort of a sale arrangement um with a vehicle that the gain goes away without being paid, so a charitable vehicle, whether that be by forming a partnership with multiple assets and stripping out assets, but leaving the basis behind. Um, but of course, if we're gonna get into that realm, <laughs> if we follow the green book, we've got a short time frame to do that because they're gonna start taxing us on funding those partnerships. Um, but I, I would see a wholesale shift away from, all right, we used to, let's plan that all these assets are passing such that we're maximizing the step up in basis. Now it's all going to be about if they were to do this, how do we get a substituted basis? Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the other uh, common techniques today that doesn't directly get addressed in the green book, again, who knows if they're contemplating this or not, is the, the traditional sale to a defective grant or trust transaction, which is a non-gift transaction, or zeroed out grant transaction, which is basically a non-gift transaction. Although there's some proposed legislation to clamp down on grants, it's not in the green book, somewhat surprisingly. And so looking at both of those things, I've, I've heard some people saying, well, you wouldn't want to, for example, do gifts now because you don't know what the rules are going to be. And if you're in a trust and they change the rules and now the trust is not a great vehicle, you're sort of stuck with the trust. I, I can see that logic on the other side of the ledger. I'm thinking, well, doesn't it mean if if I can do the transfer today without triggering a capital gain and I can seed a trust today with assets using current gift tax exemptions? So no, no gift tax, no capital gains tax to set that up today. Then they change the rules on me tomorrow. Now I have a trust that's seated with assets where I can sell additional assets into it. And I can do this 
let's get cash back out, which is going to essentially jack up your basis in the asset, the appreciated asset, you know, because you're exchanging cash for that that appreciated asset into the trust. So there, those kinds of transactions, unless they really clamp down on them in the the final legislation, I think are still going to exist. Well, and and um, you know, in that scenario, if I were to assume that the trigger or one of the triggers that I use to make uh, a, a trust effective would be the power to substitute. If I was unhappy with the transfer because the legislation didn't pass, I can always substitute. You know? yeah. yeah. And so, re- so really what you, what you flush out there is that if they really want to do what they seem to want to do or think they want to do here to fully carry it out, they'd have to, they'd have to somehow come back and eliminate Revenue ruling 8513 at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, for anybody listening that doesn't know that reference, that's a revenue ruling that the IRS came up with in uh, 1985 saying that if, if a an individual does a transaction with a trust and under the grantor trust rules, that individual is the deemed owner of the assets in the trust, that the transaction is a non-taxable for income tax purposes, capital gains tax purposes. It's a non-taxable transaction. That's revenue ruling 8513. Uh, I mean, look, that's been the law of the land for quite a while. So to get rid of that would be a shock, I think. Well, what what they're proposing in the green book is pretty shocking. It is pretty <laughs> shocking. It would it would change the system. But I'm I'm with you though, Gary. I mean, when I see these things, first of all, I'm I'm a little bit agnostic to what changes they come up with. Of course, I have my own opinions on things, but ultimately, I don't control Congress, and so whatever they come up with, that's what I'll deal with. Whatever it is, that's what I'll deal with. But I, I, I'm kind of like you, where when I see these proposals, my brain starts going, okay, what's the, what's the thing that's going to spring out of that? What's the industry that's going to spring out of that? Because something will happen. Because it always does. It doesn't matter how, how clever people in Congress are in writing legislation, and they're very, very smart people who write legislation in Congress. They just cannot possibly anticipate every single factor. They can't. It's impossible. Well, you know, and. And as much as I'm surprised by some of the, well, not surprised, as much as I would dislike some of the stuff that's in the Green Book, I, I am surprised by, by some of the things that um, that they did not go after. So presumably, you know, they, they recognize they bind therein to pass anything and looking for what can we squeak through. I mean, I would assume that a rate increase of some sort, they have some semblance of a chance of getting through, whether it's under these guises or not, I, I don't know. Um, but but the one that I was particularly interested to see that um, that there's nothing at least in the green book there's been at least minimal noise along the way is the 199A deduction that at least on its face this would leave that alone uh, and the reason that would be it's not surprising to me because they recognize they they'd have a, a tough go addressing it but that has a significant impact on this AGI threshold that they're using to get more money on the capital gains, especially on some yes. of the people, especially yes. on some of the people that they're targeting. Yeah, especially if you're in that close to five hundred thousand uh, dollar threshold, that that one ninety nine cap A deduction becomes super important because the phase outs are very similar. Yeah, it's a it's a very curious document. Um, it's not what I was expecting to see, and I don't think I'm alone. Yeah, that's. Um... I, I think that's the the uh, common perception amongst those of us like us out there. So it'll be interesting to see. I don't I don't think it's going to be a uh, the road is not going to lack bumps for for this as it proceeds. No. <laughs> 
Well, Gary, uh, I, I appreciate you lending your time and talents to this. Uh, as always, it's a pleasure chatting with you. You bet. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I am disappointed, though. I was promised that you do run Congress. That's why I'm here. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> You don't you don't know about the lobbying arm of my practice. <laughs> it isn't oh that's the twisting of arms. Okay, never that's the twi- yeah. yeah, that's the twisting. That's the crowbar uh, <laughs> lobby arm of the practice. We have to talk about that offline. Okay. <laughs> All right, thanks again. All right, thank you, Brent. Hey listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much. Thank you.